check up um, John chapter 8. We're going to look at verses 1 to 11. Uh, let's just read that through, eh? So Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning he was back again at the temple. A crowd, a crowd soon gathered and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her, what do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote something in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again and said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stopped... I stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, Neither do I. Go and sin no more. So I thought, you know, it's, it's really good when people have kind of uh, real life object lessons to go with um, their stories. So last night, about midnight, I went out and knocked on a few doors to try and find a woman caught in adultery. And uh, if you look to the door, he sh- no, she's not. <laughs> that was better than the one I put to you before, right? Yeah, okay, good. <laughs> that was the water down, yeah, yeah. Um, but I do, <laughs> I do have some questions. I do have some questions about um, this passage. And hopefully you guys do too. Uh, I'm going to ask some of the questions, and some of them we're not going to know the answer to, which is fine. Uh, and then the last question I want to ask, ho- ask hopefully, um, will trigger something in you, will we'll challenge you uh, to, to look at this passage and uh, hopefully uh, just think about some things anyway. So, number one, who do you think you are? Not you. But if I'm teaching this morning... And some, you know, other teachers of the law and some Pharisees just barged in and demanded something out of me. Isn't that a bit rude? You think if some people came in in the middle of my, and I'm sharing some ideas with you, I don't think I even have the, the gravitas or the, any, any sort of a comparison to what Jesus was teaching people. But Jesus is sitting there teaching people and, and all of a sudden these Pharisees just barge in and demand answers. That's pretty uh, entitled, don't you think? Number two. And what was Jesus writing in the dust? I think it's a bit rude of John to say that, to write that down and not tell us. But to be honest, John is, John is the one who calls himself the one that Jesus loved, right? He's the one who wrote the story and said, and the one who Jesus loved was faster than the other guys. And he ran into the... He likes, you know, I think he likes a bit of an inside joke. He likes to think, you know, I'm just going to write down Jesus wrote something in the dust. I know what he wrote, but I'm not going to tell you. You know, some say that you know, maybe it was the sins of the Pharisees, others that it was um, possibly there's this idea that she was caught in the act. So when she was brought before these people, she was actually naked. And so Jesus was riding in the dust to distract them from her nakedness. Um, but that is a bit unlikely. I've done a bit of research <laughs> because the Greek is actually past tense. Okay, and, and the process of, of actually bringing someone and putting someone to death so, so Leviticus 20 verse 10 is the, is the part where it says, you know, that if, if you find someone in adultery, you put them to death by stoning. Uh, but Deuteronomy explains a little bit about how that whole process should work. And uh, the process of putting someone to death meant that you need to have at least one of the first, uh, sorry, you needed to have both of the, the eyewitnesses, so the people who, were, who caught the person, 
And at least one of them had to be part of the stoning process. So the fact that neither of them seemed to be there, uh, sort of, and, and the fact that the Greek court was past tense, shows that she probably wasn't naked. It was probably something that happened a little while ago. Uh, and she was brought there as uh, the sole reason for, for bringing her there was to, to try and trap Jesus. Uh, and it possibly it didn't even need to be adultery. That, that's not really the point of the story. I mean, the, the headline before it says the woman caught in adultery, but it could have been anything. You know, it could have been any sin that required death. They could have brought her uh, to, to Jesus. So that's my number two question. What was Jesus writing in the dust? Like I said, we're probably not going to answer any of these. Uh, number three, the age-old question, where was the man? Perhaps he'd already been stoned. I don't know, that might satisfy some of us. You know, and maybe we might get an insight um, a little bit later on as I, as I talk about uh, my last question. Number four, why did the Pharisees leave an age order? Did anyone notice that? It's the first time I've noticed it. It's like they left and the oldest ones left first. It's kind of like they left from oldest to youngest. I don't know, Jesus had just said to them, you know, you who have uh, not sinned, cast the first stone. Maybe the old guys were like, I've lived a long life, I've definitely sinned. And the young guys were maybe a little bit more like, ooh, okay, probably a bit more keen for a stoning. So they maybe held on a little bit longer. Maybe someone hasn't sinned. We're keen. But the old guys realized, hey, that's not going to be any of us. And number five, why did Jesus say go and sin no more? And kind of an additional question to that is, and, and what if she did? Um, and I know that that sounds kind of an easy question to answer, go and sin no more. We, we know that you know, sinning is not great for us. Uh, so Jesus saying go and sin no more is probably a fairly, no, that, that's fairly reasonable of Jesus to say that. But my question is, did he say it because if she kept sinning, she'd go somewhere bad when she died? Or did, she, did he say that to her because it's just not the best way to live? You know, is it more that we, we know the effects of adultery in regards to our relationships and also in that day in regards to our physical health? Um, but what if it was more than just, you know, stop sinning because of what will happen when you die, but it's more that there's a better life for you. Uh, this stuff that you're involved in holds you back from becoming the best person that you can be. It holds you back from living up to your potential. So what did, uh, it just says go and sin no more, but if we try and unpack that, how was Jesus saying that to her? And what did he mean when he said that to her? And so what if she did go and sin some more? What if she was brought back in front of Jesus the next day? What Can you tell me what, what you think might have happened? Pretty much the same thing? I reckon pretty much the same thing. And so those are, are five kind of basic questions that I have. And, and like I said, we haven't probably answered some of them. I still don't know what Jesus wrote on the dust. Uh, I still don't know where the dude is. Uh, but the, the last question I want to ask you this morning, um, and we'll go into this in a little bit more detail, is who are we in the story? And this is a challenge that I think we need to look at every time we read something uh, in the Bible, every time we hear a, a story that Jesus tells or a story about Jesus and what's going on. We, we need to ask ourselves, who are we in this story? Because that helps us understand what's going on. It helps us understand how we apply that uh, that lesson, if you like, to our life, how we move on in this journey of faith. Um, 
you know, the a classic of this is the the Good Samaritan story. We all read that story and think, oh, I would be the I would be the Good Samaritan. Yes. I would be the Good Samaritan. But the reality is is that Jesus is telling the story and the, the Good Samaritan is the person that the people who who were the audience of the story hated the most. They were these group of people who they looked down on. They were the scum of the earth. And Jesus was telling that to the audience. And so the audience who are listening to Jesus' story wouldn't have thought them themselves as the Samaritan. But we read the story and we think, oh, yes, I am, I am the good Samaritan. I would help the person. And so it is a challenge for us to look at these stories and think, well, who are we in this story? And, of course, we all want to be Jesus, don't we? He's the best one. We'll be him in the story. We're clever enough to thwart the Pharisees with our brain, with our knowledge of the law and how it all works. Uh, we're kind, generous, and loving. And we're seemingly a step ahead of everyone else. Uh, we know the big story and how everything fits together. So I think we'll, we'll be Jesus. And great. That's something to, to aspire to for sure. I think uh, who wants to be Jesus in this story? I do. What if we're the woman? Most of us, um, we hope we're not the woman in the story uh, because we don't want to have been involved in something that's serious for a start. Uh, we don't want to be shamed in front of everyone for what we've done. And probably most of all, we don't want to be caught. Uh, but sometimes we, we find ourselves, when I've read this story before, there are times in your life where you do relate and you read this story and you feel like you're the woman caught in adultery. Uh, and if so, then reading that story it does provide us, I think, comfort in discovering Jesus' heart towards us. That it may not alter the mess and the consequences that we have to deal with in life, but we do know that Jesus does not condemn us. And we do know Jesus looks at us with grace. But the, the group I want to concentrate on this morning is the Pharisees. Uh, because I think, they are the people in the story that we really don't want to be like. And, and often we, we feel like we're not. The, the, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, whenever we read the Bible, it's, it's easy to disassociate ourselves with them and think of them as the other. Uh, especially because in today's modern language, those are the pastors, the, the leaders of the churches that, um, that decide doctrine and, and, and preach from the front and talk to people like you know Lawrence and myself. Have we talked about Lawrence this morning? Has anyone, did everyone see the progress results? Yeah. So we can now stop calling him Pastor Lawrence, start calling him Councillor Lawrence. What's next? Prince of Peace Lawrence, is that how it goes? Pastor Mia, Mia Lawrence. <laughs> and that's awesome. So I know that's progress. I haven't seen the last I saw was about five o'clock yesterday. Uh, as of five o'clock yesterday, Lawrence was elected as a councillor, which is awesome. Great news. Where was I? Pharisees, yes. <laughs> so it's easy to disassociate ourselves from the Pharisees. We think of those as the, the teachers of the law, so the people who generally teach us on a weekly basis, um, those who are in leadership, high leadership of the church. And, and for most of us, that's not us. Um, previously in John, and we just want to look at John, there are obviously three other Gospels which tell many stories, but previously in John, Jesus had gone through, in chapter 2, he had flipped the tables in the temple, grabbed a whip, drove out the money changes and all that sort of thing. Um, he had healed on the Sabbath. Uh, he had equated himself with God. And because of this, the Pharisees were not that keen on him. 
in fact, some of the stuff actually, if you read it, it, it kind of it's a little bit Keystone Cops type stuff with the Pharisees trying to get Jesus and kill him. It's like they, they, they got together and they sent the guards to get Jesus. And Jesus told them a riddle. And the guards came back and said, this man speaks like no one else. And they're like, so you didn't get him. And all that Jesus had said is that one day I'm going to go somewhere and you're not going to be able to find me. Man, those guards. <laughs> Obviously recruiting the top, uh, top brain surgeons in the land to be temple guards. And it says that the, the group of Pharisees got together and then I think, I, I can't remember the exact words, but it's just like, uh, and they were together and then they left. So it's like they thought, oh, well, that's too tough to grab Jesus. And so they left. They disassembled. You know, so the, the Pharisees in this story have come to get Jesus to be in opposition to the law of God uh, in order to charge him with heresy. So there's something that they can charge him to. So no one. Who wants to be the Pharisees in this story? A couple of people? Good. Yes, has got to. <laughs> uh, they were pretty much the only guys that Jesus went after in the Gospels. The only ones he's had harsh words for. And, and why is that? I mean, I think a lot of us know this, but it's good to reiterate. You know, these are the, the guys who had power, they had authority, and they used it to oppress and control people. They had their ideas about God, which is commonly called their theology, uh, and how he wants us to live, and he for, they forced those ideas on others and dished out punishments and used fear of punishments uh, to, to, to basically control people. And they're the ones who are the sole judges of when people had fallen short. You know, their, their law, or their theology, their interpretation of the law was more important than those that affected, that those were the, who were under it. You know, Jesus was the complete opposite of this, wasn't he? Jesus says, you know, man was made for the Sabbath, not Sabbath for the man, for man, which is completely the opposite way around. They, they were, the Pharisees were all about the laws and people needed to, to follow the laws to the letter. Jesus said, you know, you tithe on your herbs that you you harvest that's what you do with herbs harvest yeah so they, you, you tithe on the herbs that you harvest but you, you don't look after the poor Jesus said you've heard it said but I say to you he was about redefining the law the theology that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were oppressing the people with uh, there's a, there's a, he's, Jesus is saying there's a better way to live. You know, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 redefines and reinterprets the law in a way that sets people free. Uh, so Jesus' way, the way that Jesus was teaching, strips the power of the Pharisees. It strips their ability to control and oppress the people. And so it's no wonder they wanted to kill him. When we take our theology and we impose it on others through fear of punishment or through actual punishment. It's a way of creating empire and empire rule. So what the Pharisees, the Jewish people of the time were under the Roman rule. What the Pharisees were attempting to do was not remove that rule. They were attempting to replace it with their own rule. And it's interesting that it's not it's a wrong idea about the kingdom, about the kingdom of God. Because the kingdom of God is not about setting in place rules that oppress and keep people down and control people. 
You know, Jesus was very much about freedom from the oppression that empire brings, about a subversive culture that breaks chains and promotes love at the center of all we do. You know, we see the effects of empire in our world today. Has anyone been keeping an eye on what's going on in Iran at the moment? The uprising there? Uh, we look back, I've looked back and seen pictures of places like Afghanistan and, and Iran and Iraq in the, in the 60s, 70s. Has anyone seen pictures of those? Of those cities in those times? They, they look like modern day New York. It's crazy. It's so different to what we see now. The misogyny, the oppression of women, and the, the, the reduction and removal of freedoms is just crazy from that time to this time because of the way the empire and people imposing their theology on a whole other group of people has, has worked its way through those countries. Uh, and, and we may discard that. We look at those countries and think, oh, well, that's a, that's a Muslim problem. The problem is, is that when we look at somewhere like America and you look at the rise of Christian nationalism, uh, you, and things that happen in America tend to make their way here as well. But you look at the rise of Christian nationalism in America and you see that the, uh, the attempt to bring theology and impose it on a nation has unintended consequences. And the problem is, is that it brings, about, it, brings, it brings in the theology of the people at the time, those who are in power. And so we, I know that abortion is a completely tricky subject full of um, nuance and, and positives and negative arguments, and I don't even want to go there. But as an example of this, in Tennessee, they're looking to make it, a, uh, they're looking to make it law that fertilization is the beginning of life. And so any termination of life is punishable by, by a criminal offense. The problem with that is that if you have IVF and you have people who create 10 embryos to go into the, the female's body and create life and create babies, you may have four or five left over. And so you have a medical staff member disposing of those embryos, committing a criminal act. You know, Christianity has, we, we think, okay, the rule of God imposed on everyone is a great idea. We think, you know, the laws of God imposed on everyone is a great idea. The problem is, is that it's always interpreted and always comes through men. And so we've had Christianity used for racism, to, to justify racism, to justify slavery, to justify misogyny. We still see Christianity used to justify misogyny in the churches in New Zealand and the Western world. We are lucky enough that we are able to have Debbie come and speak last week, stand up the front and talk. We have Debbie and others in leadership of the church. We have Philippa. We have women in leadership and women speaking from the pulpit. And for us, that's, that's great. But there are still places where Christianity uses the Bible and uses their theology to say, no, that's not right, that women are lower than men, that they're not equal. And so the idea that the kingdom of God and the, kingdom and the, the rule of God to be used and imposed on everyone sounds great until it's not. It sounds great until someone else's interpretation doesn't actually sit right. And I've, uh, I've always had a problem with, um, and this is just personally, you may not, it's great, but for me, I've always had a problem with Christian politi political parties. Not because I don't want to see Christians in politics. I absolutely applaud. I love that Lawrence is now, you know, part of the, the political landscape in Kapiti. That's great. 
as, a, as an awesome Christian man, but he's bringing his Christian perspective to that group of people and being able to outuse, outwork wisdom and, and life and, and good words and uh, within that space. But, you know, you can't legislate for love. You can't create law that changes people's hearts. That's never what Jesus was about. Jesus was never about establishing a Christian empire. He was about a subversive group of people who would live in a way that changes the world from the bottom up, not from the top down. And so the challenge, I think, of this story for us is to ask ourselves, who are we in this story? Are we, are we a Pharisee? And I think for all of us, there are times that we, we are the Pharisees in this story, that we have our, our ideas about the way that we are supposed to live and we try to impose them on other people. And we try to say, this is the only way to live. This is the, but the problem is, is that it's our interpretation of the only way to live. You know, am I trying to impose my theology on someone else through fear so that I can control them? Or can I be Jesus with no condemnation, getting alongside and saying, hey, there's a better way to live? Breaking oppression and removing shame from people's lives. Just got a couple of quotes from a couple of people who I think just is, uh, is helpful. So Reverend Benjamin Kremer just says, if our theology is threatened by the affirmation, inclusion, and empowerment of others, our theology is about control, not love. And just one last one from Henri Nguyen. If you don't know who he is, find out and read his stuff. He says, for Jesus, there are no countries to be conquered, no ideologies to be imposed, no people to be dominated. There are only children, women, and men to be loved. So that's my challenge for me anyway, and hopefully for you from this story is, who are we in the story? To constantly check on myself every day, am I being a Pharisee in this story? Am I trying to impose my theology, my ideas about how I believe that God wants you to live and trying to coerce people by fear or by punishment? Or am I being Jesus, getting alongside, loving, no shame, no condemnation, Moving away those who would condemn, those who would push down and saying, hey, getting alongside, there's a better way to live. There's a better way for you to reach your potential. There's a better way for you to live your best life in this world. Lord, uh, let us be part of that subversive culture, that subversive group of people who uh, live out your life of love, of acceptance, of grace, of peace, Lord, and the, and the communities around us. Lord, that we would understand we can't legislate for love. We can't change people's hearts by creating laws. Lord, that only happens when we get alongside, build relationship, and allow your spirit to come in and change us. Lord, let us be people who constantly put down our stones Lord, that we would not bring people into, into shame, into oppression. But Lord, that we would be people like Jesus who bring freedom. We thank you that that, you, that is what you came to do, for freedom that you set us free.
Lord, let us be people who are free to share your love in this world.